Good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 13? If you're new with us, welcome. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary Chapel on Sunday morning. We entered into John 13 a, a few weeks ago, and when we did, we said that as we enter John 13, we are roughly 15 or 16 hours from the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. The evening began in the upper room where Jesus and his 12 closest men were celebrating the Feast of Passover together. It seems that uh, even before the uh, Passover meal had officially begun, uh, Jesus' disciples began to argue among themselves once again. This was a running argument they had had throughout the course of his ministry. Who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Well, this caused the Lord to at one point rise, take the pitcher of water in the room in the basin, take the towel and wrap it around his waist like an apron, and he went to each of them washing their feet, the lowliest task of the lowliest servant, but they weren't going to do it. And so the king of kings did it himself. He did it to teach them a very powerful lesson about greatness in God's kingdom. It's not measured by how many people you're over in authority. It's measured by how many people you get yourself under to be servants to. And so the Lord Jesus Christ taught them this incredible lesson, but it springboarded into a discourse that covers chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, culminating in a prayer he offers to his father in John 17, which they were standing there to hear, him, to hear him or listen to him. And I believe he continued to teach them through that prayer as well. And one of the things he taught them initially about humility and greatness in God's kingdom was that to be a humble servant to all, yes, would allow you or reward you with greatness in heaven, but also with happiness on earth. We studied that last time. The result would be that serving others would be lead to a happy life here on earth. Look at verse 12, as we're reviewing from last time. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you do say well, for so I am. If, then I, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The Greek word, therefore, blessed is a word that means, oh, how happy. Jesus is telling us that happiness in life is not achieved through a direct pursuit as the world often tries to pursue it. It's actually achieved indirectly when you give your life to Jesus, serve him with all your heart, putting him above all else, and then in the process, serving others made in his name. That's how true happiness comes. Not as a direct pursuit through selfish endeavors. Some of the most miserable people in the world are selfish and rich, and they're miserable because they're so busy serving themselves and no one else. Now, at this point in the evening, Jesus begins to emphasize how that one of them will betray him. Verse 18, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. So 
He's saying, I'm telling you one's going to betray me. He said, when it happens, you'll know it didn't catch me off guard. It wasn't a surprise. And that by knowing this, when it happens, you'll know that I knew in advance because I'm God. He goes on to say, most assuredly, verse 20, I say to you that he who receives, uh, most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who, who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Now, guys, to get a full understanding of what's going on, you need to understand some of the culture, all right? You need to understand that the Jewish people, when they ate a meal back then, today it's different, but back then, they didn't sit at a table lifted up on legs like we do when we eat in the West. So Da Vinci, smart guy, got the Last Supper wrong when he painted that remarkable picture, okay? He got it wrong, but hey, he was a pretty smart guy, talented guy. Um, I realized that you said, wait a minute, verse 12, it says he sat down again after he washed their feet. Yeah, and Luke 22, 14 says that um, when the hour had come for the Passover meal uh, to begin, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. But the Greek word is a word that literally means to lie down, to lie down. In Jewish culture, they didn't sit at a table to eat. They reclined on the floor. They laid down on the floor around a square or rectangular block of wood without legs that sat directly on the floor, which they used for a table. Sometimes the table was shaped with three sides, like a squared U, and the host would, in this case, Jesus would recline in the center of the U at the bottom of the table there, uh, where the, you know, you have the, the two uh, upright parts and then the middle part. Uh, that bottom part where the, where the host would recline at if it was one of those kinds of tables. And what they would typically do, they would recline around the table at a 45-degree angle, leaning on their left side, propped up on their left elbow, leaving their right hand free to eat with, was the idea. In that position, the person reclining in front of you would have his head near your chest, or as it says here in the New King James, your bosom, all right? Uh, and your head would be near the chest of the person behind you if you can get this in your mind's eye. It's important that we understand what's going on here, all right? Now, we know that the person reclining directly in front of Jesus that night was John. How do we know that? Because in verse 23, it says it was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, that's John's way of referring to himself, right? He wrote this gospel. This was his way of referring to himself. You say, well, does that mean Jesus didn't love anybody else but John? No, no, no. I don't believe it says, means that at all. Maybe Jesus had a soft spot in his, spot in his heart for John. I don't know. I think John would just never, John never get over the fact, hey, Jesus loves me. I'm the disciple he loves. Take it easy, John. He loves all of us. But, but John, John was just happy about that. He was thrilled that Jesus would love him. All right. And uh, so we know that reclining directly in front of Jesus was John. Furthermore, we know that more, we know that Peter was reclining at the table, not on the other side of Jesus, but close enough to get John's attention. 
Because as we read here, when Jesus announced that one of his disciples in that very room uh, that evening would betray him, look, it sent the disciples into a frenzy of horror and disbelief. I mean, you can imagine that, right? And as the disciples were buzzing among themselves as to who would do this terrible thing, betray the Lord, Peter quietly motions to John. He's close enough where he can quietly motion to John, got John's attention, and says to John, ask the Lord, because John's right in front of the Lord, ask the Lord who it is, right? Which verse 24 records. Now, all John had to do was lean back, putting his head on Jesus' chest, looking over his shoulder into the eyes of Jesus to ask him this question from Peter, which verse 25 says he did. So verse 25, then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Now, what is not obvious at first glance, but becomes apparent when you study the text a little deeper, is that the person reclining directly behind Jesus that night was Judas, was Judas. This means that as John's head was near Jesus' chest, Jesus' head was near Judas' chest. How do we know that? Well, there's several clues that make it clear. First of all, Judas had to be close enough to Jesus for him, for Jesus, to speak with Judas without the other disciples hearing it. We, if you study the four Gospels, they had some dialogue together, which the other disciples did, apparently didn't hear, okay? So Judas was close enough. Remember now, if he is reclining directly behind Jesus that night, which I definitely believe he was, all he had to do was lean forward a little, whisper right in Jesus' ear. So he could have been very quiet as the whole room is buzzing, it's up for grabs, who's going to betray the Lord? And they're just, you know, buzzing among themselves who would do this terrible thing. It gave John at one point time to just lean back, Lord, who is it? And then, as we're going to see, Judas would lean forward and whisper in Jesus' ears some things, and, uh, but the other disciples didn't hear it. So uh, Judas had to be close enough. Uh, for them to dialogue without the rest of the disciples to hear it. Matthew tells us that when Jesus dropped this bombshell revelation, that one of them would betray him, they all began to ask, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? You know, just imagine uh, the horror in that room, right? And then I would imagine as they were buzzing, Lord, is it I? Is it I? Right? Then who knows, because these guys weren't the most spiritual group at this point. Pentecost, they'd get filled with the Spirit, be a little different. At this point, though, you know, who knows if they turn at each other. I think it's you. I think it's you. You know, and they were pointing the finger at each other. Who knows what was going on. But, but, but Matthew records uh, that, uh, you know, that they all began to ask the Lord, Lord, is it I? As John records, that's when Peter uh, asked him, asked John, to ask Jesus who it was, verse 26. And Jesus answered John's question from Peter. Um, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Apparently, the Lord said this quietly enough so that, the, that only the person directly in front of him, John, and only the person directly behind him, Judas, actually heard what he said. Now, guys, at this point, I need to bring in some more background information. This time with regard to the Passover meal itself. 
And bear with me, all right? The Passover meal, the order of which has not changed since the time of Jesus. Jewish families still do it exactly as they did back in those days. Maybe with some small uh, variations, but pretty much, uh, you know, they, they still do it. To, and we need to understand uh, the order of the Passover because it plays in quite a bit into the whole story we're studying in John 13. So at this point, I want to bring in some of these details, all right? The reference in verse 26 to Jesus dipping a piece of bread. Now, this would have been unleavened bread. That's what Passover was celebrated with, matzah. Okay, matzah. He, he, they were dipping matzah in, uh, in, in things. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But it says here in verse 26 that Jesus dipped the bread into something and then gave it to Judas, exposing him as the betrayer. Now, that comes right out of the order of the Passover Seder itself. And again, plays an important role in the events that took place that evening, especially if we're going to understand uh, fully what is going on here, all right? So let's look at the Passover uh, meal, the Passover Seder. Seder is a Hebrew word that means order, in the sense of order of events. Uh, there's a very specific order. That's why it hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Because the whole idea is it follows a specific order of events. We'll walk you through these quickly, uh, but it does make a difference in your understanding of this whole event that evening. But the Passover Seder is built around the drinking of four different cups of wine that take place, the drinking of these cups, at different points in the order of the Passover meal. To begin the meal, the father or head of the family takes the first cup, of wine called the cup of sanctification and he raises it toward heaven and recites the kadush the prayer of sanctification setting this day apart for god uh sanctification means to set apart this is a holy day for the jewish people it was a time when this was a, a holy day a day of remembrance a day where they were honoring god for all he had done for their forefathers and for them indirectly as well and so this was a special day, and they wanted to start it with a prayer of sanctification using a cup of wine, the cup of sanctification, to start off this, uh, this uh, Seder. After the father or the head of the family, if the father was gone, or the host, whoever it might be, in this case Jesus, uh, took the cup and prayed over it. This is the, the, uh, uh, the Kudush, the prayer of sanctification. And after he prayed, lifting the cup toward heaven, he then drank from it and then shared the cup with, with everyone around the table. And this officially now began the Passover Seder. The second ceremony of the Seder is known as the washing of the hands. The washing of the hands. One of the family members brings a pitcher of water, a bowl, and a towel to each person at the table to wash their hands. The idea is this is a, um, a symbol of the act of purification, right? I mean, it, symbolically, what this whole idea is that they were washing their hands, in a sense, they were purifying themselves to then partake of this very holy feast. Now, I believe it was probably at this point in the Seder that Jesus used this time where it was usually used to wash hands. He also used it to wash the disciples' feet, as we learned earlier in chapter 13. They were arguing who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And of course, the washing of feet was the lowliest job of the lowliest servant. And so Jesus took it upon himself to wash their feet himself since they weren't going to do it. 
and we said it taught them a powerful lesson, a lesson about humility and servanthood. But uh, uh, this could have been why Peter said, uh, Lord, if I, Jesus, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. And Peter said, I'll take a bath. You're going to wash my hands anyways. And now my feet, just give me a bath. Uh, if it means I, I can be closer to you and more in fellowship, with, I'll, you know, go for it, the, is the idea, okay? Um, after the hands are washed, the karpos is eaten. That means in Hebrew, green vegetable, which is then dipped into the salt water and eaten. The green leafy vegetable, usually parsley, uh, is dipped into salt water and then eaten. Uh, the green leafy vegetable, again, usually parsley, is symbolic of initially how the Jewish people, the Israelites, flourished in Egypt. Remember, Joseph brought them down. He had risen to prime minister. And, uh, and so uh, Pharaoh said, you know, bring your whole family down here. And so he brought them down and put them in Goshen, which was the best land of Egypt if you had cattle and uh, sheep and so, for grazing. Great area. So they were initially blessed in this wonderful land uh, in Egypt. But then it says that then Pharaoh died and another Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph. And he began to put the Jewish people into hard bondage. He put them into slavery and began to use them as his workforce. And so the salt water, after the initial flourishing and blessing, the green uh, leafy parsley signifies, then the salt water, dipping it in the salt water, is a reminder to the Jewish people of all the years and all the tears of pain that they suffered and all the tears they shed in Egypt during all those centuries of slavery. Next, the leader takes the middle matzah. Now, there's three, there are three sheets of matzah used. You know, we use the little pieces and we break them for communion. But uh, you can buy sheets of matzah, right? And they would take three. Now, as I told first service, uh, the Jewish people do these things, and a lot of times they don't even really know why they do them. We know as Christians more about their Passover Seder than they do themselves in many ways, Okay. But uh, there's three sheets of matzah that are used uh, during the Passover Seder. And at one point, they take the middle one out, break it, put half back, and then take the other half and hide it somewhere. It's called the afikomen. And later in the meal, they're going to bring it out. Not that they really understand why, but we know why, and I'll share it with you in a moment, okay? It's, I was doing a little research on this, wanting to know what afikomen meant, and I discovered something interesting. It's not a Hebrew word. It's a Greek word. They're not sure really what it means, but many means many believe the root means, I have come. It's interesting. Hold on to that, okay? At this point in the, in the uh, Seder, the youngest child asks uh, an overarching question that branches off into four separate questions. So the main umbrella question that then uh, has four parts to it. Now, I would imagine that if a family has no longer has any little ones, they skip this part. Because in Deuteronomy 6 and in other places in the Old Testament, God said that it was the parents' responsibility to diligently teach their children about the Lord. And that's one of the reasons God gave them feasts that were reminders of various events that took place in their past, Passover chief among them. And so the idea was that they were to, the youngest was supposed to ask this overarching question, Father, why is this night different from every other night? And then it would lead to four questions. On every other night, we eat bread leavened and unleavened, but on this night, we eat only unleavened bread. 
On every other night we eat different kinds of herbs, but on this night we eat only bitter herbs. On every other night we don't dip even once in the sop, but on this night we dip not once but twice. On every other night we eat sitting and reclining, but on this night we eat only reclining. Now again, I don't believe Jesus and his disciples, you know, did that part of the, of the Seder because there weren't no little ones in the room. So at this point, they would have sung a couple of hymns, a couple of psalms, Psalm 113, Psalm 114. Actually, Psalms 113 through 118 are called the Hillel Psalms, the Hillel Psalms, which means psalms of praise. Uh, all of them were uh, sung throughout the course of the uh, evening. The last one, Psalm 118, was sung uh, to officially close the Passover Seder. But right now, as we are in this uh, order, at this point, they only sing Psalms 113 and 114. Next, the second cup of wine, called the cup of deliverance, is poured. And in response to the four questions asked by the youngest child, a lengthy narrative would be launched into by the father or the oldest son if the father was gone or the host. Uh, a lengthy narrative of the Passover story would be told by the father or host or someone in leadership in the family again so that the younger generation would be taught about the great God of Israel, that they would grow up loving him, revering him, and worshiping him. Now, in preparation for the meal, yes, that's right, we haven't actually started the dinner yet. I was talking to one of our Jewish gals, who's a, obviously a Messianic Jew, and she says, it took a long time to get to this part. You're starving. We haven't eaten, eaten dinner yet. You know, we're hungry. But that's how it goes, okay? There's a certain order, all right? But um, uh, in preparation for the meal, everyone present now washes their hands a second time. Again, uh, ceremonial cleansing. Then each person must eat a piece of matzah, first of all dipped in horseradish, and then a little later dipped in something called cheroset. Uh, I mispronounce it, I usually do, so she helps me with my Jewish words. Um, I heard it was most often pronounced cheroset, but she said, no, no, mostly it's cheroset. Set. So I said, okay, fine, I'm not going to argue, I don't know. Um, but um, at this point in the meal... Uh, each person has to eat some of the matzah dip, first of all, in horseradish, and then in the cheroset. Why horseradish? Because it's supposed to uh, invoke tears. You ever eat a spoonful of horseradish? Try it and see if you don't cry, okay? That was the idea. It was supposed to make them cry because it was supposed to remind them of all the tears their forefathers shed that they could come into the promised land, all the years of slavery. Now, the cheroset was a paste-like mixture made of apples, sometimes other fruits, nuts, sweet wine, or honey, all mixed together to represent the mortar that the Israelites made as they were, were as slaves, as they were forced by Pharaoh to um, lay bricks for Pharaoh's monuments. This is what this mixture of, of sweet uh, you know, fruits, dried fruits, and uh, honey, and so on. You say, well, why sweetness? I mean, here they are in slavery. I understand the horseradish to make them cry because it was bitter tears in their slavery, but why something sweet? Because that reminded them of the sweetness of God's deliverance. 
how that eventually he raised up a deliverer. We know him as Moses, who delivered his people out of their hard bondage, out of the bitterness of their bondage uh, into the promised land eventually. Next, the dinner is served. Now, I want you to understand this. We just talked about the dipping of the matzah in the horseradish and then the cheroset, all right? Then the dinner. Keep the order in your mind. Then the dinner would take place, or the dinner would be served. In Jesus' day, it would have consisted of roasted lamb served with bitter herbs and matzah. One Jewish writer tells us, and I'm quoting him, while a roasted lamb bone is traditionally used in the Passover Seder, any piece of roasted meat may be used. Most Jewish families use a shank bone. Some families use chicken or turkey necks, which they roast completely in the oven and then char over an open flame on their stoves. Unlike the other foods on the Seder plate, the shank bone is never eaten. Instead, it remains as a visual reminder of those monumental moments right before the Exodus, end quote. Now, guys, it is here that we return to John 13. And let's read again verse 25. Now, keep in mind the order of the Passover Seder. Going back to John 13, verse 25. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he, John, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him, entered Judas. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, Buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should go give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he went out, how soon? Immediately, before the dinner began, immediately he went out, and it was what? Night. Hold on to that. I believe the reference in verse 26, the Jesus dipping the bread, the matzah, was a reference to Jesus dipping the bread in the cheroset. He then gave it to Judas, who was close enough to Jesus for him, Jesus to hand it to him. Yes, right behind Jesus. All the Lord had to do is dip it, and then reach behind and give it to Judas. As Jesus handed the bread to Judas, Matthew records Judas responded, if you can believe this, surely it's not me, Lord. Uh, who's going to betray you, Lord, the one I give the bread to after I dip it in? We know the Heveset uh, gave it to Judas, and Judas feigns shock. <gasps> surely it's not I, Rabbi which Jesus responds, it's you. What you're going to do, do quickly. And then Judas leaves. The dinner hasn't actually started yet. Judas leaves. But you see, this dialogue had to take place quietly enough for the other disciples not to hear it as they were talking among themselves as to who this traitor would be. Again, the whole room is buzzing. You know, who knows if by this time it had devolved into them pointing fingers at each other. Uh, I knew it was going to be you or so, you know, who knows. But, uh, but um, I, I say this because if the Lord had announced loudly enough for all of them to hear that the traitor was Judas, I don't think personally he would have made it out of there alive, all right? 
Now, if this is accurate, and we have the order down correctly, and I believe we do, it means that Judas left the room to carry out his betrayal of Jesus before the dinner part of the Seder began, which means Judas was not there when the Lord instituted communion. I know when you read, I forget it was Matthew or Luke, it sounds like he was in the room. But understand uh, the order of the Seder and how that after Jesus dipped the bread in the head, said he gives it to Judas and Judas immediately leaves. The dinner portion hadn't even begun yet. It was at the dinner part of the Seder Jesus instituted communion, the Lord's Supper, all right? I've always maintained that Judas was not there when the Lord instituted communion because communion is a holy thing, speaking of our union with Christ that we have entered into by faith, and it's not for unbelievers to celebrate. It's not even for, for backslidden Christians to celebrate. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, he warned the church at Corinth, because you are not partaking in the Lord's Supper in a worthy way, some of you have gotten sick, some have even died. The Lord has brought judgment. Now you say, well, I have to be perfect before I can have communion? Of course not, none of us are. That's what we give uh, all you guys a few minutes to just bring your heart before the Lord before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Look, we're not perfect, and God knows that. But what we're talking about is hypocrisy. Uh, you know, living a completely different life in private than you are when you come to church and put on the spiritual facade. That's what the Lord abhorred. That's what, why he killed Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. It wasn't because when they sold a piece of property, they didn't give all of it to Peter and the, and the church. Peter said, I never asked you to. But because you sold it and you told me you gave all of it to the Lord, but you kept part back for yourself, it was the hypocrisy of that act that caused the Lord to strike them dead. This is what the Lord really abhors. It's not that we're not perfect. He knows we're not perfect. It's not that when you come to church and we're having communion that, you know, that you're, you're not involved in anything that is wrong, but we want you to have time to confess it and ask God for forgiveness. Get your heart right with him so we can enter into communion together with a pure heart is the idea, all right? So I believe that Judas was gone. The supper then begins, at which time Jesus then um, gives communion or, 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 or you know, um, gives the Lord's Supper. That's when it started. In Matthew 26, verse 26. In fact, you guys can turn there. We'll be in Matthew for a couple of minutes. Now, Judas is gone. The dinner has begun. And in Matthew 26, 26, it says, As they were eating the dinner, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Guys, I believe this corresponds to the next part of the Passover meal, the bringing back of the afikomen, which had been hidden, right? Remember, we said three sheets of matzah are used in the Passover Seder. But only the middle piece is broken, taken out, broken. Half is returned back to the other two, and one is half is taken and hidden to be brought back later in the meal. Of course, this matzah represents Jesus, represents Jesus, who is the second or the middle person of the Trinity, right? And uh, that it is broken, the Bible says he was broken for our sins. How? The Bible clearly says not a bone of him was broken. That's true. So we assume what's being talked about is 
how that his body, his flesh, was broken open at the scourging post when they scourged him to a point where uh, so brutal was the scourgings. We'll talk about this more when we get closer to the crucifixion. But um, it broke open people's bodies and exposed uh, the uh, inner uh, entrails and organs. Uh, many men died at the scourging post from loss of blood. It was so horrific. We believe that Jesus' body was broken at the scourging post. He was then taken and put on Calvary's cross where he died, taken down where some believe the hidden part means they, he was hidden in the tomb for three days. Uh, then coming out of the tomb, reappearing alive. Okay, that could be true. Others believe, well, no, it talks about him hiding by going back to heaven after his resurrection and ascension back to the Father. He's coming again. That's when the Afikoma will be brought out, in a sense. He's, it could, I don't know. You, you pick. Maybe both uh, have, a, have, a, a, have some a truth to them as far as the application. But guys, uh, I, I believe it was the Afikoma that Jesus broke and gave to his disciples when he said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now, again, the Jewish people do things that they don't realize what they're doing, okay? Like taking half the matzah, breaking it, hiding half for a while, then bringing it back. They don't really know why they do that. It's tradition. We do it, okay? But think, look at the matzah for a second, right? It's unleavened. All speaks of Jesus. It's unleavened. Leaven speaks of sin. Unleavened speaks of sinlessness. It's pierced, and it's striped. At the scourging post, Jesus endured the stripes, right? The whips of the scourge. It all spoke of Jesus. It all spoke of Jesus, right? Matthew 26, verse 27. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, guys, this brings us to the third cup of wine used in the Passover meal. The third cup of wine is called the cup of redemption. Mark it down. The cup of redemption. At this point in the meal, the wine is poured into this cup where it is now sipped by the host and those at the table. It was here, I believe, in the order of the Passover meal and with this third cup that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper or what we call communion. And he did that specifically because he wanted to use the cup of redemption, the wine of this cup, to be uh, uh, to signify, of course, they wouldn't realize it that night, but we do looking back, that with the wine of this third cup, the cup of redemption, that Jesus chose to use to institute the Lord's Supper, which talks about him redeeming us with his precious blood out of the bondage of sin and death and so on. He chose this cup because it spoke of how his blood, the blood of the Lamb of God, wouldn't just cover their sins like the blood of goats and bulls did for all those centuries of the Old Covenant period. But now Jesus is instituting the new covenant in his blood. And the word covenant, by the way, means to cut. They would cut a covenant. It was a blood covenant. And so Jesus is going to be ratifying this covenant the next day with his own blood. But it was a reminder, would be, of how that he as the Lamb of God would not just cover sins temporarily as the animal sacrifices had done, but he, his blood, would take away sin once 
and for all, redeeming us to God and causing, listen, the judgment of God to pass over us. That's what Passover was all about, how they took the blood of the Lamb in Moses' day and killed it and put it on the doorpost and lentil of the house. And when the angel of death saw the blood, it passed over that house, right? When we apply the blood of Christ to the house of our heart, we'll say, it causes the coming judgment of God, ultimately hell, to pass over us. And it was always about the blood, by the way. It was never the fact that there were Jews in that house or Egyptians. If, a, if an Egyptian family had a Hebrew servant, and the Hebrew servant heard about this, and they killed the lamb, and they put the blood on the doorpost and lentil of that Egyptian home, the angel of death would still have passed over. And if a, if a Jewish family did that's baloney, that's ridiculous, and they didn't do it, the judgment would have come upon that Jewish family. It was always about the blood because it doesn't matter who you are, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. If you, anyone can apply the blood of Jesus on the, into their life, and they will be spared the judgment of God. That's a beautiful truth, right? Well, finally, they would pour and drink from the fourth cup, the cup of praise. This is interesting. Don't miss this. Jesus apparently didn't drink this cup that night. You realize that? We read Matthew 26, 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine uh, from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You know what the Lord is saying? That final cup, the cup of praise, he said, I'm not going to drink this. Not yet until I drink it with all of my people when the kingdom of God is established. Do you realize, folks, that means that that Passover meal that Jesus started 2,000 years ago is unfinished? Is unfinished? And that it won't be finished until Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom. And the first thing he's going to do with all of us, we're going to sit down in the kingdom, and we're going to drink from that fourth cup, the cup of praise, also called the cup of restoration, or also the cup of the kingdom. We're going to finish that Passover meal, celebrating his redemption for all of us. And we are now children of God. Well, the evening would close with a hymn. By this time, they had worked their way up to Psalm 118 to end the meal. That would officially end the meal. Part of that psalm uh, contains verse 24, which says, This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Do you realize that Jesus Christ sung that hymn before going out to the Garden of Gethsemane where he would spend the rest of the evening in prayer before the Romans came to arrest him and then he was crucified that morning? You realize we often, I remember when we were young as a church, that was a popular chorus. This is the day, this is the day. And we would sing that and have a great time and you know, we would think, what a great day it is to be alive in Jesus. And especially it was a sunny, beautiful day, flowers blooming, and sun was out. This is the day. You know, we just really go to town, right? The context is Jesus was looking at the cross in just a few hours. And he is singing God's praise. Not because he enjoyed the thought of going to the cross in a few hours. But the book of Hebrews tells us, chapter 12, he was looking past the cross, past the shame, to the glory. That by him dying on the cross and shedding his blood, he would gather to himself a bride. That he would love for all eternity in heaven. The bride of Christ. That's us.
Well, in Matthew 26, verse 30, we read, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This corresponds to John 14, verse 31 at the very end there, where Jesus said, Arise, let us go from here. They have ended the evening in the upper room with that hymn, and now they begin to walk through the streets of Jerusalem towards the eastern gate, where they would exit the city, cross the bridge, uh, to walk across to the Mount of, uh, of Olives, where he would spend the rest of the night in prayer before they arrested him and he was crucified, right? He continues the discourse on his way to the Mount of Olives, all right? And we'll study that as we go. Uh, stopping, well, I'm not going to go there. It just He continues this discourse as they're on their way to the Mount of Olives. Now, uh, let me bring this to a close by saying that what you might not have known about that evening, but we need to bring out, okay, because it's critical to the story. The place where Judas was reclining that night, the place right behind Jesus, who was the host, where Jesus' head was near Judas' chest, was the, you might not realize this, the place right behind where the host reclined. That was a special place of honor. That was a special place of honor, reserved for the most intimate of friends. The question is, how did Judas wind up reclining there? Well, in Jewish culture, no person could just choose on their own accord to recline there. You had to be invited, which means that Jesus Christ invited Judas, knowing what he was about to do. He invited Judas to recline right behind him in that place of honor. Also, to offer a person the bread after it had been dipped, as Jesus did for Judas, was in that culture a sign of the deepest friendship. It would be tantamount to us uh, offering a toast for somebody in our culture. You say, I don't get it. I, I don't get it. Why would Jesus do all of that knowing that Judas was about to betray him? He did it because he wanted to communicate to Judas how much he loved him. How much he loved him. And that even at this late hour, he was giving Judas a chance to change his mind and not go through with his betrayal of Christ. I believe Jesus was, Jesus was treating Judas this way to show him how much the Lord loved him in the hopes that Judas would be convicted and brought to a point of repentance. You know, the goodness of God leads us to repentance, the Bible says. The goodness of God. Sometimes we're involved in sin, and we know it's wrong as Christians, or even unbelievers who have grown up with church and stuff. They know the way they're living is wrong, and yet God's still blessing them. Sometimes they misinterpret that. Well, maybe God doesn't mind if I'm living with my boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe God doesn't care if I'm ripping the company off. Or maybe God approves. That's a really war when you get to that point, when you think God approves of your sin, you're in a bad place. You've really deceived yourself. So instead of them looking at what God is doing and blessing them and knowing they're not living right, and they say, God, I gotta get right with God. He's so good to me. That, that's the idea. And I think that's what he was trying to do with Judas. He was saying to Judas, I believe, I, I still love you. I still want to be your friend, I still want to be your savior. But Judas, this is your last chance, the title of this message. This is your last chance. And I believe the statement in verse 21 that Jesus was troubled in spirit was because he knew where Judas would spend eternity. 
Just because Jesus gave him an opportunity to repent doesn't mean Jesus was under any delusion that he was going to take that opportunity. I think verse 21 indicates Jesus was troubled in spirit because he knew, he knew where Judas would spend eternity, and that deeply troubled the Lord. He didn't want Judas to go to hell forever. You can check out Ezekiel 18, where God pleads with sinners, please turn from your sin. Please turn. Why will you die? I get no pleasure out of sending anyone to hell. Please turn so I can forgive you and I can begin to bless you as one of my children. That's the heart of our God. Verse 30 is especially sobering as we bring this to a close. It says, Having received the piece of bread, he, Judas, then went out immediately, and it was night. Well, of course it was night, literally. The Passover was not celebrated until sundown. But that's not what the Holy Spirit meant when he said, and it was night. It was night for Judas in that the day of God's grace, the day of opportunity to be saved, had ended. He loved darkness rather than light, and now as Jude tells us in Jude verse 13, there is reserved for him the blackness of darkness forever. The Bible says God's Spirit will not always strive with people, will not always strive with unbelievers in, a, in the, in the uh, uh, chance to, uh, you know, to bring them to Jesus. That's the Spirit's ministry, to draw people to Christ. He won't always strive to do that. There comes a point in every unbeliever's life where they have rejected Jesus and the light of the gospel so often, so often, that God withdraws his offer of salvation and they are now sentenced to eternal darkness. This was evidenced by the statement in verse 27 where we are told, at this point, Satan entered into Judas. Satan entered into Judas. In other words, the devil now had complete and, listen, eternal control over Judas. There was no longer any hope for Judas to repent and be saved. The opportunity was over. The day of God's grace had come to an end. The night of eternal darkness had begun and would culminate in the outer darkness of hell forever and ever. Let me just ask you this and we'll close. Because I don't know all of you, I, and I, we have people watching uh, through live stream. That's Judas' testimony. It doesn't end well. And I believe the Holy Spirit, if he wanted to represent this with some kind of a drawing, would have Judas' face with a big red circle around it and a line through it. Sometimes God teaches by comparison. Sometimes God teaches by contrast. This is a lesson by contrast designed to say, look at this person's life. He had every opportunity. I chose him to be a disciple. He walked with me for three and a half years, and yet he still went to hell because his heart was so hard, he never would receive me as his Savior. How about you? The fact that you're here this morning, you know, it says that it was night. That's the Holy Spirit's way of saying Judas had passed the spiritual point of no return. That point where a person's heart gets so hard, they can never repent and receive Christ. The fact that you're here this morning or watching uh, via the live stream indicates you probably haven't passed the spiritual point of no return. How do I know? You wouldn't be here. I mean, if, you, if your heart was that hard, where there was no more chance you'd ever be able to repent and receive Christ, you wouldn't be here, folks. So the fact that you are here, it's a good sign. It's a good sign, okay? 
that you haven't passed that spiritual point of no return, that the day of God's grace has not ended in your life, you still have time, you still have the opportunity to receive Christ and be saved. Right now, God's extending his arms to you. I don't know what God's doing in your life. I would imagine he's trying to get your attention. Um, maybe he's blessing you right now. And you're interpreting that to mean God is okay with the way I'm living. No, it's not what you should take away from that. If you are living in sin, if you are living a life that is contrary to what God has said in his word, God is not approving, he's not pleased. And if you're being blessed right now, know this, the goodness of God is trying to bring you to repentance. If you misunderstand what's going on and you take the blessings in your life for God just saying, go for it, I'm really happy with what you're doing, well, the day of grace will end for you someday. And I don't know when. It might be today. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. If you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. You may not get it tomorrow. I mean, don't betray. Don't wind up like Judas is the point. Don't betray Jesus for the sake of your friends, whoever they are. Well, I can't accept Christ. I can't be a Christian. I'll lose all my friends. Then lose them. Are they worth going to hell for? Don't betray Christ for a few pieces of silver. What do I mean? Material blessings? Jesus said, what would it profit a man or a woman if he gained the entire world but lost his own soul? What, what would be worth your soul? What material? You think Bezos, the richest man in the world, uh, is going to go to hell if he hasn't received Christ? I hope he has. I don't think he has. And say, well, I'm just glad I was the richest man in the world for a while. Not going to mean anything when you're when you're in hell. Today is the day of salvation, but folks, the night is coming. The night is coming. May God, the Holy Spirit, never say to you, when you leave church, and harden your heart so much, this is it. I'm never going back. May it never be said of you where the Holy Spirit says, "And it was night." You don't ever want to hear those words. And so while it is still day, quote-unquote, while this is still the opportunity you have to receive Christ and be saved, take that opportunity. Don't wind up like Judas, who at this very moment, at this very moment is in Hades, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, where he will eventually be cast into the lake of fire hell for all eternity. This is not a lesson by comparison. It's a lesson by contrast. May God give grace to everyone in this room to make the right decision, to make it now. Your eternity hangs in the balance. May God give you grace to not let this opportunity pass. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you're so good and kind and merciful. And many in this very room, Lord, we we took you up on your offer of salvation. By your grace, you opened our eyes, you opened our hearts. It's all you. But thank you, Lord, that we have opened our hearts, that we have received Jesus, that we are going to spend eternity in your kingdom. But for all those here this morning and those watching online who have not made that decision to receive you, Lord, who are playing games, maybe going to church, but then walking out those doors and living like unbelievers all, all week long, because they are unbelievers, Lord, get a hold of their hearts that they would really understand how much you love them. And you won't 
enjoy sending them to hell. You're grieving over that. But Lord, give them grace right now to fall on their faces, confess their sins, and receive you as their Lord and Savior before it's too late. Father, we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.